You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Incest, rape, American imperialism, and war. Huh. What is it good for? Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on... What? What? Mad Universe! never taken a brain bug alive. We'd either cleaned out colonies from the surface, as on Sheol, or, as had too often been the case, raiders had gone down their holes and not come back. A lot of brave men had been lost this way. Still more had been lost through retrieval failure. Sometimes a team on the ground had its ship or ships knocked out of the sky. What happens to such a team? Possibly it dies to the last man. More probably it fights until power and ammo are gone. Then survivors are captured as easily as so many beetles on their backs. As may be, we wanted those prisoners back. In the grim logic of the universe, this may be a weakness. Perhaps some race that never bothers to rescue an individual may exploit this human trait to wipe us out. The skinnies have such a trait, only slightly, and the bugs don't seem to have it at all. Nobody ever saw a bug come to the aid of another because he was wounded. They cooperate perfectly in fighting, but units are abandoned the instant they are no longer useful. Our behavior is different. How often have you seen a headline like this? Two die attempting rescue of drowning child. If man gets lost in the mountains, hundreds will search, and often two or three searchers are killed. But by the next time somebody gets lost, just as many volunteers turn out. Poor arithmetic, but very human. It runs through all our folklore, all human religions, all our literature. A racial conviction that when one human needs rescue, others should not count the price. Weakness? It might be the unique strength that wins us a galaxy. Hi there, and welcome to a possibly controversial episode of What Mad Universe, uh, the podcast that delves into the history of genre fiction and the origins of pop culture. Uh, today we're looking at what is, for good or ill, one of the foundational texts of science fiction, and a major impact on pop culture, both in and of itself and via the film adaptation it spawned, Robert A. Heinlein's Starship Troopers. Uh, we're joined by prolific blogger and podcaster Andrew Hickey of the Science Justice League blog. Hello, Hi. Andrew. Hi there. Hello, good to have you. Yes, he's uh, he's written illuminatingly about Heinlein, so uh, we thought he'd be a good guest to have on the show. Um, and of course, Phil. Hi, Phil. Hi. And uh, yeah, or so hoorah or whatever. <laughs> hoorah, yes. All this very jingoistic uh, episode that we're going to be dealing with. So of course, um, yeah, this is one of the more uh, prominent uh, books uh, uh, in the science fiction uh, canon. Uh, and to the point where, uh, you know, some people absolutely love it and some people absolutely loathe it. Um, 
And it was written by Robert A. Heinlein, who is one of the generally considered one of the great grandmasters of science fiction, um, who uh, did actually have a naval career, uh, lasted about, from what I understand, about five years. Uh, and he was uh, it was cut short because he had illness. I believe it was a form of tuberculosis uh, that caused him to have to leave um, in around 1934. So he never served during wartime. And um, um, so uh, a lot of people have described this book as kind of a uh, what's the word? Uh, a, a, a bit of a peon. Fascist. To... <laughs> well, we'll get there. Uh, but it's a bit <laughs> of peon to uh, to what might have been. It was him sort of uh, glowingly describing uh, the you know the military career he might have been in sci- he might have had in science fiction form. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> Phil, you didn't like this book very much. Uh no. Um, it wasn't my thing. <laughs> um. I, I found uh, the political it, – it's made up largely of political diatribes, of which I very much disagreed with mm-hmm. everything. Right. And um, what story was there wasn't very interesting to me. Maybe it's an uh, it's, uh, uh, issue of it – I don't know. Um, well, so much of our culture now is sort of this – you know, so many movies and stuff yeah. are, are boot camp stuff. So maybe it was uh, more – uh, interesting at the time, but I, I just, um, it was a rough one for me, even though it wasn't very long. Yeah. And you, re- you actually recommended we do this if I'm not mistaken, right? It was your, Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought it would, <laughs> I, I, I thought it would be interesting. I'm, I'm fine with, uh, with reading things I don't like, uh, to, to within reason. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, there's no denying that this book, uh, has had a major impact, not just on science fiction, uh, but arguably in, uh, you know, the culture at large, you were saying the other day you saw Ben Shapiro using one of the arguments that I think originated in this book. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure if it originated with this book, but um, I, I had heard uh, an argument from from Ben Shapiro uh, fairly recently where he, he tried to um, uh, disprove the um, labor theory of value. Where he said, you know, if you make mud pies, that's useless, and you might be putting work into it, but nobody's going to buy it because it's useless. And that's supposedly a big gotcha of, of socialism in general. Mm. I don't know. Um, but uh, it seems to have at least uh, uh, an early version of it uh, was uh, appeared pretty much word for word in this book in one of the political sections. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely. Um, I think it's. I think Heinlein has been a big influence on uh, conservative libertarians and and conservatism, as we now experience in general. Uh, but anyway, Andrew was uh, just actually before we started recording. Andrew was telling me a bit about Heinlein's uh, sort of uh, writing career in general and sort of how his pol- politics uh, seems to have fluctuated a lot. So uh, yeah, Andrew, can you tell us a bit more about that? You were you were just describing it there. Okay, so Heinlein went through a a series of different political positions over his life, while always claiming that he kept to the same positions. One One thing that he was always consistent on, he was always a believer in patriotism and in America first, and in the value of the military. And that's obviously something that comes across very, very strongly in Starship Troopers. Um, And it comes across in most of his work. But everything else in his politics changes dramatically over the decades. He starts out in the 30s as um, 
he probably wouldn't have used the word socialist, but he was in effect. He was certainly at least a social democrat. He was on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. He supported Upton Sinclair's campaigning. Um, he was a very he was a very big believer in a um, system called social credit, which was put forward by um, Upton Sinclair, um, and that was that was basically about. As best I understand it, about, about the idea of credit and the monetary system being put under democratic control rather than being controlled by banks, um, and this was this was Heinlein's first big thing, his first his first big campaigning thing in the 30s. Um, his first novel, which wasn't released until decades later, long after he died, for us the living, is basically this rather dull, turgid diatribe about social credit which is frankly unreadable um, and so then he becomes a big supporter of uh, Roosevelt he, he he's very much on the left of the Democratic Party but he's also very much about patriotism and about um, America first and particularly about the military he served in the military he believed the military was the making of him um, then, during World War II, he marries, um, I think she was his third wife, she might have only been his second, but uh, Virginia, who became his wife for the rest of his life. Yes, it and was his she, third wife, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she was rapidly right-wing. Uh, she hated Roosevelt with a passion. Um, she was very, very, very far right. Uh, not, as far as I'm aware, racist or any of those things, but um, uh, on the far libertarian wing. Um, and she became a big influence on Heinlein's politics. And over the decades, he emphasised his belief in the military and his belief in individual liberty more and more, and de-emphasised his beliefs in economic justice more and more and more. He left the Democrats in 1954, and he became this reactionary, right-wing, Republican, hawk, gung-ho... Um, but at the same time, he was, he was never... Um, he was never the dogmatic kind of Trump Republican that you see now. For example, he was very, very much about... Um, he considered himself a feminist, although he was deeply sexist. And he, he put forward what he thought were feminist atti attitudes. But it was the sort of, women should be in charge because they're better than men because they're so much nicer kind of thing. Yes, um, I he, noticed that. The sort of It's a gender essentialist kind of yes. feminism. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it comes through in this book where uh, women are uh, suited to be pilots. Um, yeah. And it, it yeah. goes into various reasons. And one of them is that uh, uh, the men who drop down see a woman and remember what they're fighting for before they drop. So. Yes, exactly. That, that, ki that kind of thing. Um, and he... But he was... He, he, he moved very, very much to the... To the right-wing libertarian individualist kind of thing without um without too much of the racist stuff that is the backbone of right libertarianism unfortunately um the the libertarian movement in america really comes from the opposition to desegregation and the opposition to civil rights but they pretended otherwise um, the other big influence on him in this respect was John Campbell, who was the editor of Astounding magazine, and he was 
a frothing, rabid racist. He published Defences of Slavery. He, he published um, constant support for segregation in the 50s and 60s. He was a really vile human being. Um, but he was the editor who Heinlein was writing for, and he was somebody who Heinlein respected intellectually. Um, and so you see Heinlein shaping his writing early on to not include too much in the way of racial equality and that kind of thing, which was something Heinlein believed in, again, to the extent of a white man with a military ethos born in the early years of the last century. You know, he he wasn't progressive by our standards, but he was progressive by their standards. But again, he de-emphasized that for a long time. Um, and that's something that he actually started to emphasise more as he went on, and as he was writing novels rather than writing short stories for Astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's that is really interesting because um, when you look at uh, what Heinlein uh, did, it's it, as you say he he um, he kind of had this evolution. Last uh, the very last show we did, we were talking about Star Trek, and we were talking about Gene Roddenberry, and uh, you know he was also a Navy man and also literally a cop, yeah. and his uh, his politics. <laughs> Uh, they're almost, in a weird way, the inverse or complementary to Heinlein's in that they, you know, he moved into this very strange uh, economic, political, almost communist viewpoint. <laughs> and yeah. it was almost entirely through what he had written and the, and the fans responding to what he'd written. Uh, and it was, it was through sort of chasing ideas. And Heinlein's the same but went in the opposite direction. It was just... Uh, from exposure to people and from you know openness to new ideas, he went down this other rabbit hole of uh, right libertarianism, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Although uh, both Heinlein and Roddenberry's sexual politics were more or less identical, um, <laughs> and probably yeah. their racial politics, their, their economic attitudes um, were very, very different. But otherwise, they were very similar figures in a lot of ways. But yeah, and yeah, they, they both. Heinlein's last period, actually, is very Roddenberry-esque, or very the kind of thing that Roddenberry wanted to write but couldn't get away with on network TV, because as you you probably know, Roddenberry was a gigantic pervert and basically (laughs) wanted every episode of Next Generation to be about orgies. Um, (laughs) And most of Heinlein's work for his last couple of decades, particularly, he he started to develop... um, blood clots in his brain and um, also stopped having anybody edit his work and that meant it becomes this sort of freeform rambling often fantastically interesting but also crazy stuff Um, and a lot of it turns out to be about incestuous orgies basically (laughs) yes yes i've read uh uh i think it's time enough for love the one about lazarus long which is yeah. literally just uh, a series of sexual encounters in many ways. Yes, um, yeah. And the, the sexual encounters with, like, his mum and clones of himself. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so in that in that way, Heinlein is a very Roddenberry-esque figure. They're, they're, very, sim- they're very similar in that way, and, as you say, in their naval backgrounds. Um, and, indeed, the social credit stuff that Heinlein supported in the 30s is quite close to the economic stuff that Roddenberry later claim to support, you know. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd not thought of that parallel before, but they are very similar yeah. figures. Yeah. And you know, it's it's interesting because you can look at um, uh, the parallel, the way uh, Heinlein's politics evolved, and it in some ways it 
you know, and, and I'm not an American. None of us here are Americans, but we're commenting yeah. on American culture. But based on, you know, from everything I've seen and what I've read, you can sort of track uh, a, an evolution of politics uh, from the pre-World War II period to the post-World War II period where uh what was very normalized as you say upton st Clair uh running upton st Clair running for uh for uh, i believe it was congress he ran for and um, yeah. he, he you see this uh embracing of a lot of socialist ideas but after world war ii those kind of came out in a more right-wing form um yeah and even even again talking about roddenberry you see the sort of you see Star Trek uh, in its earliest form. Uh, that was almost a baseline for science fiction in many ways. It was a little more progressive. It, it embraced the idea of you know racial harmony a little more. But that, and you see it in Starship Troopers as well. It's this idea of okay, there's there's going to be one world government. Uh, we're all going to be united as a people, uh, all the different nations. But America's going to be running the show still, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, implicitly. <laughs> uh, but it's we're, we're going to embrace all the different countries. Early on in Starship Troopers, he actually has the big scene. Uh, which, if people have seen the movie, will know when uh, the, the the sergeant says, "Anyone who thinks they can lick me, come and come at me." And in the book, yeah. it's explicitly uh, uh, a pair of Germans and a Japanese uh, guy come at him. And that was this was only a, a decade or so after World War II, uh, yeah. so it, it almost felt like he was emphasizing that, yeah, yeah, we're all going to be united at this point. Let's get over, you know, World War II era, and <laughs> we're all going to be yes. fighting. And later, there's a Muslim. Uh, there's you know different yeah. people. Yeah, and. Uh, uh... Johnny Rico, the main character, is Juan Rico, and he's implied to be Filipino, I, I believe. Right. Yes, yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, of course uh, the movie uh, whitewashed them all, but it, it sort of worked with the movie for once because uh, the movie was. We'll talk about this, but obviously parodying the book in a lot of ways, and yeah, that, that sort of fits the the Nazi propaganda aspect of the <laughs> of the film that it was going for. Right. Yeah, and that, also dark implications that South America has been taken over by white people. You know, I, I almost feel like I'm playing devil's advocate here because, you know, there's there's aspects of the book where you can see a well-meaning attitude coming out from what uh, Heinlein was writing. Like, he, as you say, I mean, he wanted to write about a pluralistic culture. He didn't want it to be, you know, uh, for all that I think Heinlein has influenced uh, modern day uh, libertarianism very heavily. I think I think. Um, it, it, it's telling I've, I've talked before about how, you know, someone like Jordan Peterson, well, maybe not on this podcast, but I've talked before Jordan Peterson uh, may have been influenced by Dave Sim, the comic book writer. <laughs> and yeah. uh, yep. it, it, in the same way, it, it feels like a lot of people that, you know, the Ben Shapiro's, the, the hardcore so-called libertarians uh, probably read a lot of Heinlein uh, growing up. And uh, oh, actually, absolutely. Yeah, I think actually, in fact, uh, Andrew, since you know a lot about this, uh, maybe I think there's a link there in the whole Sad Puppies campaign from a, a, a few years ago. Uh, maybe do you want to tell us about that uh, since you were you were following it pretty closely? I think. Yes. Um, well, the thing the thing is, yeah, Heinlein is a both an understood and a misunderstood figure, um, often by the same people. Heinlein was attempting to write philosophical fiction. He was thinking of himself as being like George Bernard Shaw and people like that, um, using using his fiction to put across ideas. Um, and many of the ideas he was putting across in the 1960s were very, very right libertarian in the Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, whoever kind of way. Um, you read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, um, and that one retrospectively 
the um, Prometheus Award, which is an award given by libertarian for libertarian science fiction, and sometimes that goes to stuff that is ideologically completely not libertarian. People like Charlie Stross have won it, have won the award, um, but in the case of Heinlein, the Moon is a Harsh Mistress fits perfectly into the worldview of um, 60s and 70s white libertarianism. Um, and in, in particular their obsessions with gold buggery, their obsessions with um, segregation being a state's rights issue, these kind of things, um, which are very, I mean, you replace, you replace the gold standard with Bitcoin and you've got modern day libertarians <laughs> still. It's, it's the same thing. Um, the the a, a huge amount of American libertarianism seems to be seems to be based either on just pure racism, or on wanting Thomas Jefferson to have won the intellectual war with Alexander Hamilton when Hamilton won when it, when it comes to fractional reserve banking and things. And the Moon is a Harsh Mistress is basically a take on the American Revolution, but in space, and it comes down on the Jeffersonian side quite hard. Um, it's where you get the phrase, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, which is obviously a very libertarian slogan. Um, but the, the, the sad puppies are the kind of right-wingers who call themselves libertarian, but are actually fascist. They, I can guarantee you that everybody involved in the sad puppy campaign won, uh, voted for Trump. Now, the sad, puppy, the sad puppies was a thing that happened for about three or, three or four years in the middle of the last decade. Um, basically, a writer called Larry Correa, who wrote dumb adventure fiction, but with tons of pro-gun propaganda in it. Um, you know, the, 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 the kind of thing where people would go out and shoot a load of monsters, then stop and talk for ten minutes about how dreadful it would be if the government took, took their guns away so they couldn't shoot the monsters, then go back to shooting more monsters. I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating, that's, that's the books. Um, he... He was nominated for the Campbell Award, named after John W. Campbell, who I mentioned earlier, the editor of Astounding, um, which is an award for new writers. It's actually recently had its name changed because people right. said, hang on, we shouldn't be giving this, this award named after <laughs> the biggest racist in the whole of science fiction history, even <laughs> including H.P. Lovecraft. Um, Jeez. Yeah. Um, and, but... Larry Career was nominated for this award in, I think it was 2013, and he didn't win. And he decided this was because uh, the, the Campbell Award is the award for new writers that is given by the same people who vote on the Hugo Awards. And he decided this is because everybody who votes on the Hugo Awards are a bunch of snobs, and they don't like proper adventure fiction that people actually like to read, the, the common man, you know. Um, so he got tons of his fans to sign up and nominate him and then vote for him as, as a vote for proper, real, manly adventure pulp fiction, not, not, not any of this highbrow intellectual nonsense well, of course, the, the, the Hugo Awards never go to highbrow intellectual nonsense. At that <laughs> best, they're middlebrow, you know. Right. Um, um, but their they're simultaneous things are that the Hugo Awards are biased towards liberals and against conservatives, and that the Hugo Awards don't like gung-ho action adventure with, with no morals, just, just a good plain story. Although, as I say, what they consider political ideology, you know, if your mm -hmm. if your if your book has a gay character, that makes it political. But if your book has somebody stop and talk for twenty minutes about about how the Second Amendment is the greatest thing in the world, that's yeah. not political. That's ju that's just good storytelling, is their view. Right. 
Yeah, it's yeah, we see this sort of attitude reflected in a lot of other, you know, the various gates and stuff where yes, keep politics yeah. out of my comic books, but the, yeah, yeah. the stuff they produce is always explicitly yeah, I, political. Yes. I sort of read uh, the the sad puppies as sort of the bridge between uh, Gamergate and Comicsgate, and the absolutely you know, that's the science absolutely. fiction community. It didn't get as much play, I think, in the general. Uh, knowledge and it seems to have died down although maybe i'm wrong but i don't seem to see the sad puppies uh playing as much of a role as they did before maybe i'm just not paying as much attention anymore right. um, um, the sad pu the sad puppies um like i say the hugos changed the rules so the sad puppies te techniques to get on the ballot um don't work anymore um they, they've made it so that things that are on an organized slate where everybody's voting in lockstep don't get weighted as highly and so so their techniques don't work now, the, the, where this connects to Heinlein is, firstly, obviously, these people call themselves libertarian, although they are the kind of, quote, libertarian, unquote, that is Trumpist and that is fascist. Um, they, also, they also said that Heinlein was the model of the kind of stories that they wanted to write. Um, thinking of things like Starship Troopers, not the, the bulk of his material, but that <laughs> specific sort of window. And... They they said that people don't want good old adventure stories by people like Heinlein right now, but I'm going to read out a quote from Heinlein. This is this is from a letter he wrote about a, the kind of criticism he doesn't like, and you'll see if Heinlein really would have fit in with the puppies or not. He will permit any speculation at all, as long as it is about gadgets only and doesn't touch people. He doesn't care what mayhem you commit on physics, astronomy, or chemistry with your gadgets, but the people must be the same plain old wonderful jerks that live in his hometown. Give him a good old adventure story any time, with lots of gee whiz in it and spaceships, and spaceships blasting off, and maybe the good guys in white spaceships chasing the bad guys in black spaceships, but brother, don't you say anything about the Methodist church, or the flag, or incest, or homosexuality, or teleology, or theology, or the sacredness of marriage or anything, anything philosophical. Because you're just an entertainer, see? That sort of heavy thinking is reserved for C.P. Snow or Graham Greene. You are a pulp writer, bud, and you will always be a pulp writer even though your trivia is now bound in boards and sells for just as much as Grace Metallius' stories, and you are not permitted to have heavy thoughts. Spaceships and heavy thinking do not mix, so shut up and sit down. The rule is, science fiction by its nature must be trivial. This, of course, rules out a large fraction of my work and all my future work, I think. Yeah. Now, that pretty much sums up exactly what the pu the puppy's rhetoric was, and what the, what they said, almost word for word. And he was, you know, that's everything he despised. Um, <laughs> which is which is why, despite despite his politics being abysmal for much of the time, despite his weird obsessions, um, Heinlein is a fundamentally more honest, more interesting, more readable artist than any of these people who considered themselves to be following in his footsteps. Well said. And on that note, let's pause for a word from our sponsors. Video Death Loop is a podcast where we watch a short video clip on loop until we just can't take it anymore. Along the way, we'll try our best to make each other laugh and to hold out longer than the other guy. You can jump in on any episode, no need to worry about continuity. Check out Video Death Loop on the Greenlit Podcast Network with new episodes every Friday. Hey Chris, what's the War Rocket Ajax podcast about? Well Matt, if we were smart, it'd be about murders, but it's actually about comics. War Rocket Ajax, it's not about murders, but it is weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network.
that so that brings up uh, an interesting point that uh, in many ways, from what I've read of Heinlein, I've read some of his stuff. Um, Starship Troopers is not really characteristic of his work, despite being, you know, one of the granddaddies of his work. And the other two things he's, uh, I mean, I guess there's also, as you say, uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which, uh, yeah. as you say, it's the American Revolution, it's, it's the libertarian uh, wet dream of the American Revolution <laughs> uh, yes. in space. Uh, but, and th so those seem to be the two seminal texts for these people. But he also wrote Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh, which is yeah. one of the seminal sort of hippie texts that's out there. Yes. Um, yeah. And and his later stuff seems to have been um, again sort of peons to sex and philosophy, I guess, uh, as you said. So so it's really fascinating that those are the two that everyone fixates on with Heinlein. It as much as it's the premise. Of, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure everyone knows the premise at this point, but the the core. Uh, aspect of uh starship troopers is just the idea of a future where you have to serve in the military in order to be uh franchised as a voter uh you have to you, you have not to serve. quite not quite um you have to you have to perform some kind of public service to be a fran to be franchised as a voter um, right. it doesn't have to be military service um mm -hmm. and this is this is something that timeline always emphasized when he was talking about the novel far more than he emphasized in the novel itself um i think i think partly he was trying to soften what soften the implications of the novel but also i mean it's mentioned briefly in the novel that you can do other things but yeah for for practical purposes in the novel it seems it seems to be it, the novel is about military service but you could technically be, be doing other stuff you know he just doesn't care about the other stuff mm -hmm. yeah but it, it's sort of weird because uh, how it describes the society getting set up is that um local military people took over areas that were you know, rife with crime and stuff, and uh, they only trusted other veterans to, uh, yeah. Um, to yeah. uh, uh, serve in public office and stuff, so it just sort of grew out of that naturally, um, yeah. which doesn't really fit with the, you know, you can be a other kind of public servant. That's, yeah. I think that's the case about this novel, and with a lot of stuff that, you know, people of this nature write, uh, where... They really are interested in exploring the ideas. Like, I think Heinlein, whatever you want to say about him, he's clearly got a good faith uh, interest in exploring all these ideas. And I think that was characteristic of these post-World -war, War II sci-fi writers, of which Heinlein is yeah. one of the granddaddies. They really, really did want to explore these ideas. They really, really did want to have a discussion. They probably would have had a discussion. I'm not saying they wouldn't have punched you in the face if you said the wrong thing, yeah. <laughs> but they would have They would have wanted to hear these converse ideas and had a big discussion about it and had a whole uh, conversation. They weren't like the mo the people we're talking about, they, who are just using it as an excuse to push their views. When they say we yeah. don't want politics, what they mean is we want our politics and we don't want anyone to question it. Heinlein probably would have been good with people questioning it and exploring new ideas and, and pushing it. So there is a genuine uh, feeling of good faith, I think, coming from uh, his work and, and even this book itself. But then you do have to look at the basic core of what he's writing. And it's not bizarre that people read this book as fascist and jingoistic because it really does emphasize the military aspect of things as phil says the the the, the society is literally evolving out of veterans who took the place of you know and he talks about how democracy failed there's actually a big as phil was mentioning there's a huge rant about corporal punishment and specifically he seemed to be fixated on he seemed to have the 50s fixation on juvenile delinquency there's a whole yeah. passage. how spanking children would cause this to go away is if you know the reason that uh crime happens is we don't beat up children enough 
that almost more than anything else dates it <laughs> because yeah. you can see it was made written during that period when everyone thought juvenile delinquency was going to lead to the collapse of society and that was the big thing that we had to be concerned about and not you but it's know... the 50s we have to go back to isn't it yeah <laughs> exactly um well yes this is what i'm uh, as always it's it's the idealization of the 50s rather than the actual 50s yeah. as they were um it, it it really is um so so when your emphasis is that and as you say the emphasis he does say you're right in the book it's very clearly said you as long as you do public service of one kind or another you're considered valid for voting um but he really emphasizes the military as sort of the and it, it's implicitly if not explicitly yes. stated that that is the highest form of public service you can do yeah is is yeah. a military and i mean he ha he has a point of course you like he literally says well you're laying your life on the line to protect the civilization of which you're a part uh you know it in some ways, there's things that even a leftist couldn't disagree with and saying that, yeah, it's got to be about a communal effort and we've got to work together. That passage I cited at the, at the beginning is not the passage of a modern-day right-wing or a modern-day conservative. It's the, someone who legitimately believes that we all have to work together. It's just that yeah. he sees it as being under the umbrella of the military, as it were, <laughs> being yes. the, the primary focus. Yeah, now, now he, he talks about... Um, yeah, we've all got to work together and and uh, and function as part of the military. Uh, but at the same, so and you can see him. You can also see him struggling with communism throughout the book. We mentioned this earlier. Um, yeah. Because he he can understand that you know communal working and as you said he worked for Upton Sinclair. People who don't know Upton Sinclair was a socialist uh, as well as a, he of course he was a writer. He wrote uh, the, the the Jungle, and um, but he ran. Uh, for politics a few times as a socialist and then as a democrat but of you know a bernie sanders kind of democrat very yeah. socialist uh and and heinlein worked for him for his campaign <laughs> and then stood himself as a democrat in the 30s as well so you can see him getting on board as i say you can see the evolution of this attitude of yeah we've all got to work together we've all got to be part of the uh you know the the collective society we've got to do what's best for society and put ourselves, you know, put 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 our neighbors, you know, above ourselves, or or at least on par with ourselves. And you can see how that evolved in the fifties into like, yeah, but communism, yes, communism, <laughs> it's not great. To the point where even the bugs in this novel are in. I mean, he more or less explicitly says they're 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 communists of a kind. Yes, right? yeah. They, yeah, yeah. He says they're they're um, that humans can't really do communism, but because because of our how we're made up but the the bugs can so yeah. they, they have like a true true communism because of their genetic makeup right and again but yeah. you would read the book and you'd think it would be a very uh very uh you know right-wing screed and then you read some of his other stuff and it doesn't seem to compute to the point actually when i first read the book i had seen the movie and i read the book and i thought Oh, gee, this book, uh, maybe the book is meant ironically, too. I wasn't 100% sure. Um, that was my influence from the movie, of course. I was kind of going, yeah. oh, you know, because he does talk. There are implications in the book, uh, arguably, that yeah. he doesn't 100% think it's an idealized society. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. He, he does. I mean, he talks about juvenile delinquency, and then there's a scene where Johnny and his friends get jumped by juvenile delinquents who are running yeah. rampant in the, in the scene. So <laughs> you, you, you kind of have to wonder if he did mean for it to be a bit. And, and Rico is explicitly meant to be 
uh, a meathead who doesn't really understand everything and, and only gets a glimpse yeah. of the, the society of which he is a part. So that is another window into... And plus, you you know, you see the movie and every military action they do in the movie is just a complete failure. Like, they're just... They keep messing up over and over again. Um, yeah. And you would think that would be Verhoeven, but that is in the book, too. They keep yeah. <laughs> messing up militarily. They're losing the war for much of the, the book, and, the, and it's not resolved at the end of the book any more than the movie. Um, so yeah. you kind of... There is, an, there is the window into looking at the book and saying, maybe he's... Maybe we shouldn't take everything he's saying as literally as he can. But, but do, what do you think, Andrew? Am I am I completely insane um, on that point? No, no, you're not at all. Heinlein saw his writing as a way of exploring ideas rather than a way of um, showing a finished ideas. Uh, you know, it, it it wasn't it wasn't putting down his conclusions. He was working out his idea his ideas about what he what he thought about things as he was writing, and so the, there is often not a dogmatism there um there's there's often which is weird because he was a very dogmatic his writing style is very dogmatic he he, mm-hmm. he will have people just say laying right. down the law this is this is the, this is this and this, that's the way it is and that's the end of it but then you'll read another book and he'll say completely the opposite thing in the exact same style um mm. so this sort of very hard-edged macho masculine uh, I am a hundred percent right and will brook no opposition. Style sort of um, doesn't uh, makes makes him read as being more dogmatic about about the ideas in the books than he, than he was. And certainly, he would say later that he that he thought there were both good and bad points about the society in um, Starship Troopers, and that it wasn't meant to be an idealized perfect society. Although I believe I can't remember for sure, it's a while since I read it, but I believe he said that he thought it was probably slightly superior in many ways to the society he was living in. But, for mm. example, it, 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 he, he, would, he, would often write, he would often write a book to see what he thought about something. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be writing a book to tell you what he thought about something. And so, yes, mm. you, get the, you get these um, these weird incongruities in there. And, yes, he didn't, he, didn't think, he didn't think of Starship Troopers as being any kind of utopia, no. Uh, like he was he was pluralistic in that sense in that i can have all these views coming together and maybe working together even though they seem to be very much at odds with each other i th- that's how i would characterize a lot of and not just Heinlein, but a lot of again the old school uh sci-fi people they would tend to say we can all have tea together and <laughs> talk about these ideas um yeah there's um there's a strange aspect of the book as you mentioned it's a world government but very much american world government it's obviously Mm-hmm. Uh, America won out in the ideological fight to some degree, right. um, and um, but they they do have sort of world military uh, history in there. There's uh, a right. major bit about um, uh, a French uh, soldier during the uh, Napoleonic Wars and stuff. Right. They never mention World War Two and Hitler and how that. Yeah, sort of, that's very interesting. Um, I, I think very he, briefly, but yeah. I, I, yeah, they they never really bring up you know like following orders at all costs you know right. they, that just, has a very obvious historical. Uh, mm-hmm. um, well, but at the same time, it's it's funny because World War II is usually the justification for uh, American militarism. Like there there in many ways there was a real uh, lack of enthusiasm for military adventurism in the U.S. Uh, because of coming out of World War One and everywhere, but especially in the U.S. Um, just the idea that well we shouldn't be going off and conquering other yeah, countries and the right World War Two at that co- time 
Right. Yeah, the right wing at that time was anti uh, mm-hmm. entering the war, uh, both because they often agreed with Hitler on a number of issues, but also uh, because of that sort of nativism. America right. First was the name of the party. Right, right. Well, that they were, yeah, and that was literally the, the American Bund. But it, it was, um, yeah. but yeah, there were people who maybe didn't like the Nazis, but said, yeah, but we can't get involved, you know, we're, we got to stay home. Um, whereas mm-hmm. after World War II, with America dominating the world, the right, the, the default right-wing viewpoint was, well, it's our responsibility, it was the neoliberal viewpoint, right? We've got to get out yeah. there and spread our American values. Which again, it's, it's it's funny because Star Trek, the original series, and uh, Starship Troopers have that in common in that it's space America, basically, yeah. but in a positive yeah. way, mostly, but still, yeah, but we'll we'll be in charge, though, because we're the right way. Um, there's a, a thing, a quote from uh, Philip K. Dick. Um, there's two quotes. I've only been able to find the actual wording for one of them, but there's another one I remember him saying. So I'll read out the one first. Um, uh, but Philip K. Dick, for those who don't know, was a... Long-haired at the time, druggy, um, very, very left-wing, hippie um, kind of person. And Heinlein was Heinlein, who we've been talking about. Um, uh, uh, now, here's the quote from Dick. Several years ago, when I was ill, Heinlein offered his help, anything he could do, and we, we had never met. He would phone me to cheer me up and see how I was doing. He wanted to buy me an electric typewriter, God bless him, one of the few true gentlemen in this world. I don't agree with any ideas he puts forth in his writing, but that is neither here nor there. One time, when I owed the IRS a lot of money and couldn't raise it, Heinlein loaned the money to me. Um, and there's a, a, a bit more later, but it, ter- it turns out the timeline didn't even know properly that Dick was Dick was in financial trouble. He, he, he'd he sort of figured out that probably he needed some money, so he just sent him a check. It wasn't like Philip K. Dick had asked him or anything. Mm-hmm. He just decided to put a check in the post to this bloke he had n- never met, who he disagreed <laughs> with on everything, because he thought he might be in trouble. But, you know, you, at, on one level at least, you go, well, at least you're ideologically consistent. You know, there's <laughs> that. Uh, it's not yeah, great, um, but that, it's that something. That story you told um, uh, reminded me of that fake uh, Voltaire quote that it's often thrown around, but I uh, uh, may not agree with what you say, but I fight for your death uh, to the death for your right to say it. He right. apparently never actually said that, though it did uh, match his beliefs. Oh, I thought it was a Jefferson the, the, quote. I always heard it. No, no, that. the exact quote no, was it, from it, a. Um, it was a biography of, of Voltaire. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that I, I'm just going to check the details of this, but there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a science fiction fan story that connects to that. Um, Okay, I, I can't. I can't remember. I can't. I can't find the exact quote, uh, the exact story. So the, the details might be wrong. But Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and Lynn Sprague de Camp and a few other people were all working for the, in the same munitions factory, uh, the same munitions development thingy. I think it was in California in the Second World War, um, and they would all eat together. They would all eat together at the uh, commissary. And every day they would go in, and Asimov would complain about uh, would complain about the food, um, and so um, and eventually, I, I think it was Heinlein, but it might have been uh, De Camp. But one of them said, "Asimov, you are you are never allowed to complain about this food again. Just shut up. We can't be doing we can't be doing with it anymore. You're not you're not allowed to say this at all." So the next few few days. Asimov sits there quietly, just sulking, not not talking, because he wants to complain about the food. Then somebody else who's new comes in, sits down, starts, eat, starts eating, complain, compl- complains about the food, and Asimov immediately stands up and says, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> yep. And from that point on, they allowed they allowed Asimov to complain about the food again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, there's always a level at which I don't think anyone can ever be a hundred percent ideologically consistent on that point as much yeah. as they might make a show about it i think you're always going to run up against the point of you know whether it's karl popper's you know uh, paradox of tolerance or or yes. something or even just a sense of because i think a lot of as we say a lot of the right wingers who talk about freedom of speech are being very hypocritical they're doing it as an excuse to advance their own viewpoints not to really uh, invoke uh, freedom of speech but you know at the or same like a uh, recent story uh, jk rowling signing that uh Right. Um, oh, yes. um, free speech thing, and then a week later, suing somebody over <laughs> saying yeah. something mean about her. Yeah, exactly. And she'd probably say, "Well, you can sue them. That's not violating their freedom of speech." <laughs> I don't know. Okay, it's you, you always find some kind of loophole or some kind of legalistic way to say what you're doing is okay, even though you're, you know, preventing someone's speech. Um, one, there's a um, a weird. Um, idea in this that uh, morality can be measured mathematically comes up a few times but it's not yeah. really explained like yeah. um in, in the classes uh they they're told to you know come up with a moral justification and provide mathematical proof right well yes. that, that was a thing that would, that would in one way or another would come up a lot in the writers that um John Campbell mentored uh, edited, because it was an idea that John Campbell basically believed. He, he believed everything <laughs> was mathematically me measurable, and he believed that eventually you could turn moral philosophy into a science. Um, and this is why you have both the psychohistory and Asimov's foundation stories, where right. you, you have people mathematically modeling the whole future history of the, gal the galaxy, because um, you can model people's behavior perfectly. And it's also where you get Scientology from, uh, which uh, L. Ron Hubbard f first pu first published the, the Dianetics books and the early Scientology stuff in Astounding. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard was a friend of Heinlein at, the, at that point. Um, there's the, probably the apocryphal story that they had a bet to, to which one of them could start a religion first. Um, mm -hmm. But Dianetics and Scientology was again an, an attempt to scientifically calibrate morality and um, you know, religion and all the ethics and these kind of, these kind of things. And obviously, Hubbard was a nut job, as indeed was um, Campbell. But and this is another idea from that period that still exists a lot. I don't know if you're fam familiar with the so-called rationalist groups, um, the, pe the people that started out on a blog called Less Wrong and then later on Slate Star Codex and so on. And they they have links with the they're basically where the neo-reactionaries come from, which is the sort of pseudo-intellectual side of the alt-right. And they are all... Um, they're basically... They started out as trying to create a an artificial intelligence that would have the perfect morality and would run everything perfectly. Um, and, again, trying, trying to come up with some sort of version of human ethics that can be put into computer code. Um, and mm. it's uh, it's unfortunately it's the kind of thing that very much appeals to autistic people. I'm I'm autistic myself, but I'm, this is a negative stereotype of autistic people. But it's one with a grain of truth. We like systems, and we like to be able to understand things, and we like to be able to to put things into neat little boxes. And that uh, the vast bulk of early science fiction fandom seems to have, seems to have been autistic. And there's this 
crank back the aspects, going going to ideas like this, and yet mathematically mathematically proving morality is it's a big thing in that time in in those in those stories. Yeah, I hadn't made the connection to uh, Foundation. That's really interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I was as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, you're right. Foundation, in, it's psychology rather than morality, but the same thing. It's if we yeah, get exactly. mathematically uh, about uh, um, story structure and stuff. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned, the the books uh, sort of divided into uh, lectures and, uh, and plot most of the plot being his uh, um, going through boot camp and then officers training and stuff and then a bit of the actual war at the end um, right I, I was I was interested because I, I rewatched the movie this week in preparation for this and um, although the movie is explicitly satirical and making fun of aspects of it it also kind of I don't know I'm not going to say fixes, but sort of tweaks some things that sort of make it flow better, like the, the idea of his uh, teacher becoming his uh, commanding officer later. Um, right. That's in the movie, and but in the book, uh, the, the teacher who uh, uh, gets him to want to join the military in the first place just writes some letters later. Like right. It's, yeah, it's, he doesn't it's, really factor into the... It's, it's yeah, it's been Hollywoodized very heavily, which is actually part of the satire as well. Like the yeah. fact that they ramp they ramp up this love triangle to a ridiculous degree is actually, you know, I mean that's explicitly part of the uh, of what Verhoeven is doing. He's making it sort of ludicrous, and it's it's essentially meant to be a propaganda film for uh, you know the society that exists in the movie. Um, and that was the kind of thing. If you watch, you know, propaganda films, they often do that kind of thing. That's like, there's got to be a girl, and there's got to be, you know. Yeah. I, um, um, I've uh, somebody described uh, the movie as Archie in space. Yeah, it's a hundred percent Archie in space. It absolutely. They even track onto like like Jughead Neil De Neil Patrick Harris's Jughead. You know, like it's. Um, but one of the thing I, I noticed now, of course, so just to mention this, a lot of the Heinlein fans and the kind of people we're talking about, although not you know, not a perfect circle, there's some overlap, but um, there are quite a lot of people who are angry about the movie to this day and yeah. still keep plotting to uh, remake it as a, quote, serious adaptation. Uh, Including the producer of the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Apparently that movie was in part uh, designed to, uh, to yeah. raise funds for uh, a... Uh, faithful adaptation of starship troopers yeah so that's weird yeah and i mean the thing that they'll usually talk about is that uh it was missing the power armor that's like the number one thing everyone's yeah. upset about um because it's so cool and i mean yeah it's cool it's a cool sci-fi premise so i mean um but since I, then we've had iron man and all those sure things. it would yes. be redundant at this point point. and in fact even at the time they made the movie uh a james cameron's aliens uh, yes. obviously borrows a lot from Starship Troopers as well. Like, the Marines are effectively right out of Starship Troopers. Uh, they don't have power armor either, but they have those giant, uh, you know, uh, uh, submachine guns, and all, I don't know what else you want to call them. The but mech suit things. Yeah, yeah. they've got, they've, they're pretty close to being <laughs> yeah. mech suit uh, soldiers. Um, so there's clearly a lot of, and, and of course it was a budget thing as well, that was part of the problem. Uh, I, 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 when I was looking at the Wikipedia page for the uh, for the movie, there's actually on Wikipedia, and there's even a citation, they talk about, like, well, it was a different, unrelated... Uh, I, I've actually heard that. It might have, like, an early draft was an unrelated thing that just had similarities, and then they got the rights to 
Starship I, Troopers I, and mapped it onto it? I'm sure that's true, but the thing is, the the final movie is actually surprisingly faithful to the book in some ways. Uh, you, they can't really argue that they, like, the plot is there, the characters yeah. are there. Uh, of course yeah. they change things, but only in a Hollywood way of, like, well, let's make it more exciting if he's saving his girlfriend at the climax. Not, that's, that's not a case of, uh, you know, we're... That's not used to undermine Heinlein's ideas. It's, you know, the fact that Verhoeven is mocking Heinlein's ideas. Yeah. And he was actually very faithful to the ideas as presented in the book. They're just very simplified and streamlined. Um, of course. It's and just... made fun of and explicit, you know, like, uh, the, the bit where in the movie uh, where the recruiter um, is says, uh, yeah, the uh, mobilized infantry is what made me the man I am today. And it zooms down and he's got no legs. That's yeah. actually in the book. Um but it just emphasized differently. They yeah. uh, they set up um, um, disabled people as the um, or people who are amputees and stuff as the um, recruiters to uh, dissuade people from joining up on a whim and that sort of thing. Right, right. There's a, there's there's a different. It's essentially the same plot but a different attitude towards everything. Yeah. And you could almost see like you know when you read that you kind of go well you know that's fair. I think one of the big problems with the book when you read it is that. For all that we're talking about Heinlein having different attitudes, everybody that Rico encounters in the story, every, like the command structure of the society, is portrayed as being idealized. He never gets a bad commander. They talk yeah. about, you know, they send, uh, they, they, the Klendathu operation is just as badly uh, executed in the book as it is in the movie, but everyone Rico ever works under and meets directly is perfect they're the perfect command they're the perfect sergeant they're the perfect commanding officer they're the perfect administrator they know how to deal with and they're always they care deeply about their men's uh personal uh, attitude and they know exactly when to all the tiny little tricks to know how to who's going to cut it and who isn't and all this kind of stuff um and and they and when they they have to uh drum someone out early on they they beat themselves up about it and this is our failure and so on and so forth and it, and i mean not to disparage the military, who I'm sure does do a lot of that in real life, but it's but they're it's also almost, jerks. It's 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 <laughs> almost ludicrously idealized to the degree yeah. that they care about the psychology of their men and how everything being run as perfectly as possible. Whereas when you have a war, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. always like the fact that. Johnny doesn't get a field commission, a field promotion in the book. He has to go through officer school. I think if the war was as desperate as being portrayed, there would be people getting field promotions to higher ranks. That does happen, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, both uh, Buenos Aires and uh, San Francisco are destroyed in the book, off off page, and mm -hmm. it's just sort of treated as a as an aside. It's very odd. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, he has no. Per I, well, his mother dies in Buenos Aires, but that was a fluke. She wasn't meant to be in Buenos Aires. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, there's no less personal connection to what's happening. Uh, also in the book, um, his father, who's um, opposed to him joining up uh, into the military, um, in the book he later joins the military after, after mm -hmm. Buenos Aires and uh, becomes uh, an officer and mm -hmm. says that he was only opposed to his son joining because, you know, it just made him feel bad about his own choices. Right. Yeah, it's it's a you know in a way it's a nice moment. It's kind of like I you know I I 
the tables turned. But it's also very much like, son, you were right and I was wrong. Everyone who ever disagreed with me is proven to be wrong, basically. You know? Yeah. Um, as, and, as and that's the thing it, you get yeah. in all Heinlein's books. Everybody who disagrees with the main character is always wrong. Always. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's that's something that uh, that that that's that's something that always puts up a little red flag. No matter how well you're arguing, you kind of go, okay, but you know. Is the main character never allowed to be flawed? Is he never allowed to have a problem? You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, and nobody's I think... allowed to disagree with him without them being like some sort of pedophile or something. I, you know, well, not in this book, but like that—that's yeah. something it, it, that happens in a lot of these didactic things, where the people who disagree with you are bad, but also for other reasons. Right. It gets They're more so general... in the later books. It gets much more so in the later books. Pretty much every story can be su- can be summed up as um, a. An old writer with red with red hair who 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 has the exact same views as Robert Heinlein go, goes goes around being right about everything and having sex with lots of younger women. The end. <laughs> uh, I, literally, then it's it, it's just it's just you have a self insert character who is clearly clearly based on Heinlein um, and who says ex- exactly all the things that that, if, that Heinlein would say, and everybody else says, "Wow, you are so right and and correct, and also you are the world's best writer, and also you are sexy." Yeah, yeah there, there's also about um, uh, gay issues. Like you would defend gay people, but in the same breath, uh, defend incest. So like it's yes. yeah. Yeah. It comes with caveats. It's it's a little. Yeah. Oh yeah, not I'm not I'm not trying helpful. to portray him as super woke at the day, you know. But he no. he, he, he he ended up coming from a weird angle and being surprisingly good on some things. As yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What, as I was reading Starship Troopers, uh, you know, with the uh, racial diversity and uh, at least. Uh, theoretical gender equality and stuff i i was thinking of it as this like woke fascism yes <laughs> like yeah, weird sort of uh fascism but with yeah. with like you know hire more women fascist sort of thing yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. yes um, yes it was an honor and a pleasure to have you andrew uh on the show that was uh wonderful um fun, i think fun to be on. Yeah. I, I just uh, yes for final thoughts. I just say that if people are interested, not so much in the writing particularly, but in the whole ethos around Heinlein, there've been a number of good books written about Heinlein very, very recently over the last few years. Uh, one I would recommend actually though is about John Campbell, who was the editor I mentioned, who mentored a lot of these things. It's a book called Astounding: John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction by Alec Navarro Lee. Read, read, read that book um, if you have any interest in, the, in where a lot of the ideas that have shaped the last half of the 20th century and the first couple of decades of the 21st actually come from. They come from this small handful of weird perverts, in mostly, <laughs> in, New, mostly in New York, who all knew each other and who were all really strange. You know, um, people like Alistair Crowley become a minor character in this. Um, and, yeah. yeah this, it, well, it, yeah, he ties into uh, the whole L. Ron Hubbard thing because yeah. Hubbard uh, got a lot of his ideas from uh, Jack Parsons, who was in yes. Well, they're blowing taps. Time to fall back to our retrieval ships and evacuate. We are Sky Marshal Adam Prosser and Fleet Admiral Philip Rice and our guest Staff Sergeant First Class Andrew Hickey, retired. If you haven't had a chance to do so yet, you absolutely have to check out Andrew's podcast, The History of Rock Music and 500 Songs, at 500songs.com, which is absolutely one of the best podcasts available on any subject. It's all killer, no filler. Uh, Thanks, as always, to our engineer and producer, Alex Ross, who keeps the Roger Young flying, and the Solomon Marshall sounds of Jack Furick, who wrote our theme song. Uh, Don't forget, you can listen to the show a week early by subscribing to our Patreons, 
Just search for Adam Prosser or Philip Rice at Patreon or check the links on the website at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe. We're also on social media, including Facebook, Tumblr, and YouTube on Philip's channel. And on Twitter at WMU Podcast. Philip is spearhafock underscore. I'm prankster36. And Andrew is hickeywriter, H-I-C-K-E-Y writer on Twitter. Also, we're on the Greenlit Podcast Network now at greenlitpodcast.com. So check out all the other great shows there. Until next time, dismissed!